Blog Talk Radio. Good evening and welcome once again to Madam Perry Salon, the podcast that loves you, the podcast with more celebrities than the inauguration. I am your hostess, your groove mistress, and your spiritual advisor, Madam Perry, or you can call me Jennifer or JP or Jen. It's all good with me. I'm just glad to have you here. And thank you to everyone who's been listening. Hey, had a big jump in numbers last week, so thank you. Um, we have, uh, if, if you're listening on Blog Talk Radio tonight, and this is April 27th, 2020, or some call it the year of the rapture or something. I'm not sure why. Uh, and it is uh, GMT minus 4, 8.01 p.m. Thanks for being here. And by the way, that would mean that you're listening on Blog Talk Radio, the, the uh, live version. So um, if you're not already following and you feel so inclined, would you click that little pink or zelia pink box that has white letters that says follow or just follow on whatever your uh, preferred podcast platform is. And um, oh, and thank you for the people who leave uh, reviews on Apple iTunes and Stitcher. I really appreciate that, especially as I've said before, because you said you like, some people have said they like the fact that I have some people on that are well known, like say Lita Ford from the Runaways or somebody, or uh, that it's somebody you don't know, maybe a historian, um, food historian, or an astronomer, or an anthropologist, or whatever, and you like learning about. Uh, meeting new people too so great thank you i need to keep knowing what you're thinking also i keep telling you my guests love to give away things and give discounts so people have asked me about a couple um last week when i had julie eve with her new book slide to unlock matt coyle with the fifth in his rick cahill crime fiction series lost tomorrow each one of them is giving away a book so it just kind of messaged me with a question i mean with your name that which book you want to win and i'll put it in the uh drawing uh let's see what else oh franny goldie f-r-a-n-n-e-g-o-l-d-e and uh yeah those are the she has the uh, pants that you always see in uh oprah and the style section by adam glassman or uh, sometimes adam takes the clothes she designs to um uh the view yeah <laughs> keep thinking to the view i i don't know i don't uh, usually watch that but, uh, yeah, so you can get a discount. When you get ready to check out, put MPS, which stands for Madame Perry Salon, in your checkout. And Franny Goldie, yes, the same Franny Goldie that wrote Night Shift by the Commodores and Stick With You by Pussycat Dolls and Dreaming that Selena did, that same Franny Goldie will give you a discount. And one more thing. Um, Two weeks ago, my guest was Kyle Mabry, sports agent and CEO of True Athletics, and he's also giving you a discount. Now, the cool thing about Kyle, and we had a great time when Kyle Mayberry was here. In fact, we just had to quit while we still have phone calls coming in. Um, but what he has is this. With True Athletics, it's about 
matching, uh, well, let's put it this way. He wanted to make it easy, very simple, very easy for student athletes to find the right university or college, and he helps to match student athletes with the institution based on their ability. He's got a team of professional advisors. They are made up of retired and current professional athletes with many years of experience in college and pro sports. And what you do, you just go to the website, get started, and you don't have to worry about, well, like, is somebody going to try to sell me a big thing, uh, try to get out of me like I'm some kind of a TV star or something? No. Uh, you go, you pick out what you want. There are several packages. They are not expensive. Uh, fill out the player bio, upload your video, select your payment option, and that's it. And then one of the advisors or scouts will get back to you with a list about the schools that are best suited for you or for your child. And right now, He's got, until the uh, end of April, a discount I'm allowed to give you, and it says STRONG, S-T-R-O-N-G, 2020. That's S-T-R-O-N-G, 2020. Put that in at checkout when you choose your plan, and you will get 50% off. See? I guess are just very, very, very generous and very good to you. Now, um, interesting Things going on. I see a lot of people talking about what's going on, what's happening. You know, my listeners, you're all very smart people. So I reached out to some of the smart people I know. And lucky for me, I know a lot of people that are a lot smarter than me, but they still let me kind of hang around um, to join us tonight talking about what people think life will be after the big influx, the big surge, and then hopefully the flattening of the curve and the end of COVID-19. I say futurist because these are people who make a point. You know, I've also considered myself, I call myself an armchair sociologist, or after I went to college, I just called myself an armchair ethnographer. That just means I watch people in the mall or something. But these are people who who do watch, who watch, who read a lot of history, who study things now, uh, and try to come up with what's going to happen going forward based on history and on um, people's and uh, behavior, now. and not just people, but on the behavior of uh, planets and uh, the financial markets and so forth. So first of all, I'm going to introduce someone who's been here before and someone that I am such a big fan of, Mr. Will Her Will is an expert in global logistics. He's also a theorist in collective dynamics, a.k.a. mob mentality, author of the Broken Throne series, 530 Return, a collective. He also drives big trucks around and honks the horn. So if you ride by him and do the little pull thing, he might even honk at you. Who knows? Will, welcome once again to Madam Perry's Salon. Thank you, Madam Perry. It's an honor and a, and a uh, privilege to uh, be here. It's a privilege to, that, to me that you know you've got your own pillow in here in the genie bottle to sit on, but that is yours and yours alone. It fits my behind perfectly. I, 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 I can't <laughs> I, I, I can't say thank you enough. Oh, wonderful. I'm glad. I'm glad to hear that. It, it hasn't got any – well, it still fits. That's good. That's good. Um, so, Will – you know, I asked you for uh, to help me come up with some ideas for something different for a show, and you said, well, what about futurists? Let's discuss things looking forward. And this is, you just seem to have this ready to go. Is this something that's been on your mind? 
Well, it's something that I have to do all the time anyways. Uh, part of uh, part of running your own business, especially dealing with logistics, is to uh, is, is is to second guess what's going to happen well before it happens, so you can position yourself. And uh, luckily, I have contacts in Eastern Europe, and we we provide value added service uh, for logistics through our contacts. And uh, so, if if you want, we can get something from one part of the planet to the other part of the planet. Without so much difficulty, but in order to do that, you have to know what's happening, where, when, why, how, the whole nine yards. And so it's kind of my job. So when people talk about, you know, the is there any questions or instability about supply chain, when everybody's worried about hoarding certain types of food or what will run out, these are things, this is probably much smaller, on a much smaller scale than what you handle all the time, but... Can you relate or do Absolutely. people ask you questions about this? Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, right. yes, uh, that's uh, that, that's the type of thing that I deal with all the time. And uh, also, I uh, use my background and uh, my background in sociology. I wouldn't call myself an absolute expert in sociology. I'm extremely well read, and I use my knowledge to uh, I use my knowledge in sociology and collective dynamics to second guess how countries are going to jump so that I know where and when and how to be. All right. Well, I, you provided me with a, a very interesting uh, panel here tonight, so I'm going to go ahead and just introduce everyone else coming in. Uh, first, this lady is um, a very prolific author as well as an expert in financial marketing, Mary Fon. Hi. Welcome, Mary. Hi. Thanks for having me. This is your first time here in the Genie Bottle, isn't it? Yes, it is. Okay. Well, I hope you're comfortable, and we're glad that you're here. And I'm going to go ahead and introduce the other two guys sitting next to you, and then we'll just have a good time. <laughs> also here tonight, he is a uh, <laughs> okay. Also a writer. Uh, he studied plant biology, amateur astronomer. I think we have a couple of astronomer friends in common, Mr. Thomas Watson. Thomas, welcome to Madam Perry's Salon. Yeah, glad to be here. First time in a uh, genie bottle myself, and i got to say it's a lot roomier than I expected. Oh, good, good, good. Thank you. <laughs> um, and, <laughs> and this guy, um, actor, filmmaker, director, and I think a whole lot more things that seem to be, I don't know if they're all um, kind of uh, secret live things or what, I don't know, but uh, actor, filmmaker, director, Eric Schumacher. Eric, welcome to Madame Perry Salon. Are you comfortable? I'm comfortable. The, the seats are gorgeous and uh, and, and very, uh, very uh, you know, I love the memory foam in them, and I love the way that the windows <laughs> are, uh, are beautifully designed with stained glass, especially in my section here. Oh, good, good, good. I don't know if you know. Yeah, the first thing uh, uh, I've had some guests talk about the decor. Uh, one of my favorites is uh, uh, Kevin Sultan. He's a bass player for uh, Todd Rundgren and also works with Joan Jett and Blue Oyster. Call. And the first thing he's like, oh, Moroccan decor. You know, you don't see that a lot. So, uh, all right. So, Thank you all for being here. Mary Fan, Thomas Watson, Will Hare, uh, Eric Schumacher, right here in Madame Perry Salon. I am so thrilled to have you here. So, um, Will, I'm going to just start with you to get things rolling since you know your way around here. And in case somebody knocks on the door, you'll know what to do. 
what is, as I was starting off asking about uh, mentioning supply chains, so what changes has COVID-19 made? And does anybody need, or first of all, let me say this, does anybody need a definition of COVID-19 or do anyone of you want to describe it for people? Any, do you think anybody? Uh, I think that would probably be a, a question for Thomas. How do, you, yeah. how do you describe it? I mean, it's a viral pandemic that, uh, although we saw the possibility coming for decades, didn't see this specific one until it whacked us in the face. Um, mm-hmm. a, a virus that affects multiple organ systems, it's not just a respiratory thing, although you hear a lot about that. Um, and it's something that we're we're not accustomed to. The, the human human population has never been exposed to it before, and that's the root of all of our problems because nobody has anything like a natural resistance. We have no effective treatments for it. Um, it it's, it's a really ugly thing. <laughs> yeah, I think I read that it was really discovered um, by uh, a woman in Scotland some years back who worked with electron microscopes, and she happened to notice that it had these little spikes that gave it sort of a, a halo effect under the microscopes. So that's where she came, they came up with the name the corona you know, for for crown and uh, the COVID and how the spikes make it attach to um, certain cells, specifically in the lungs. Yeah, the, the class of viruses is well known. This specific one was, you know, came at us out of the wild. So, yeah, it, there, there's a whole group of viruses that fit underneath that rubric of coronavirus. This is a specific one, and we we've never been exposed to it before, which is why it's having the consequences that it has. Yeah, and everything seems to have been, it seems to have happened. Well, people talk about what's slow, what's fast, what handle, but I just know that I was out to see a um, couple of you folks, some of you guys, I think it's what Eric and you, Thomas, are in Tucson, Arizona. Yes. That's correct. Yeah. And I was there the first weekend in March for Wild Wild West Con. And as we were leaving on Sunday, we were talking about. Uh, yeah, we were told to turn our clocks forward, <laughs> but we. Uh, you, you know what Wild West Con is, don't you? It's a, the Steampunk yes. convention held there, the old town Tucson, and uh, so yeah, we said we were told as we left there to uh, turn our clocks forward Sunday night. We didn't know we were going from a Western Steampunk world to the Twilight Zone just by moving our clocks forward and going on with life. So, yeah, things little known, the, uh, little known. Huh? Little known fact, my sister was actually a stunt woman at Old Tucson back in the 80s before it closed. Oh, wow. Okay. She fell off of roofs. She specialized (laughs) in falling off of things. That's a good job description. What do you do? I fall off of things. (laughs) Fall off of Well, anyway, so yes, we came back from there, and that seemed like just the last big fun weekend. We hooped it up, and they came back and never went out too much again. At least some people didn't. Um, So then talking about that, since we just got – thank you very much, Thomas. Um, So, again, what changes, uh, Will, do you think COVID-19 – or what have you seen? What kind of changes have you seen it make to national and worldwide – supply chains well first things uh the first thing to consider is that the economy itself has been completely shut down uh, well 
possibly not completely. There are some essential businesses, some businesses which are considered essential. However, these are being centrally chosen. Uh, by centrally, I mean uh, in a top-down decision-making process. So the businesses which are considered essential are those businesses that that are uh, that our leaders assume we can't live without. However, it ignores all the ones that those businesses can't live without. Uh, so what you're seeing is what you're seeing is a breakdown of things like farming, especially farming, a uh, breakdown in a breakdown in uh, the retail trades and a well, let's let's be honest, a 20 percent uh, 20 percent unemployment rate and climbing, and I expect it to keep climbing even after we we, try, we attempt this restart. Uh, overseas, you're seeing that a lot. Somebody is breathing into their phone. Um, the uh, there we go. Uh, I, I, overseas, we're seeing a case where where convoys of trucks are being escorted by the local militaries or the local police across from border to border. And it's a very, very strong impediment to any kind of global trade. So it makes things, it makes things interesting. Uh, and especially with the airlines, uh, the airlines shut down with the, uh, with entertainment shut down, with tourism shut down. <sighs> We're just going to have to see how things go. I'm hoping for a miracle, but I'm not expecting it. Hmm. So, yeah, uh, everybody's hoping for a miracle. Um, so breakdown and, and supply, yes, it does affect us globally. Um, I have, you've often said that hunger threats often precede wars. Can you, can you tell us a little bit about how that works and are health threats similar? Well, to, to understand it really, you have to uh, understand Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Are you familiar with that? Yeah. Okay. Uh, well, I'll, I'll go over it a little bit anyways. Maslow's hierarchy of yeah. needs, he was a very smart man. He was a psychologist, and he, he outlined a series of tiers. That uh, a series of tiers that mankind goes through, that individuals go through as they progress socially, and at the very base, simplified very much, at the very base is survival, things like food, shelter, uh, mates. Uh, at the next tier is security, uh, that is security, food security, uh, housing security, uh, marriage, uh, children. Uh, at the next tier is self-respect. Uh, again, this is simplified quite a lot. At the next tier is self-respect, and uh, where other people uh, other people believe in you uh, and uh, think that you're doing a good job and get higher than that, and it's and it's. Sorry about that, I'm my a, dogs. My, I'm my a biologist. Went off. I know a dog when I hear it. <laughs> yeah. At any rate, uh, the uh, the um, the final stage is self-actualization, where you don't really care what anybody else thinks, and you do your own thing, and you've got your own set of 
you got, you got your own set of rules and you've thought about them. People like Martin Luther King, uh, people who have thought very hard about what they believe is right and wrong and now follow their own path. Um, that said, societies go through these same go through these same tiers. Uh, a hunger threat is a level one tier, meaning it is an existential threat. And when there is an existential threat to the individuals in the nation, they will turn their ire either toward the nation in which they live or towards the nation that caused it in their eyes. Right now, we don't know which direction this is going to go anywhere. Uh, a lot of this has to do with politics, how things are spun. However, keep in mind that it takes a lot of energy to move from Tier 1 to Tier 2, from Tier 2 to Tier 3, and you feel a real sense of accomplishment like you've arrived. But when you are knocked down a tier, that all comes back as anger. You get angry that you've been knocked backwards. You worked all that time for nothing. Health threats are a Level 2 tier. Uh, however, they can develop into a Level 1 tier, a uh, Level 1 threat. Uh, so... Health threats might uh, might destabilize countries, but hunger threats will really do it, and that is what we need to watch out for. And recently, the UN came out with reports stating that directly because of COVID-19, 30 million additional people in the world will be uh, will likely die of starvation. That's a huge number. That's a destabilizing number. So there's a lot of pressure. On uh, uh, there's a lot of pressure towards conflict and not a whole lot of pressure towards towards banding together to overcome this thing. Does that explain it to you? It does, and uh, I've got to tell you, stop because it made, it made me think about it just as I was thinking about some things like this. Um, Late when I was watching uh, Twilight Zone, it was the episode, The Monsters Are Due on Maple Street. Mm-hmm. And if, if anyone remembers that, it's where uh, power goes out, and so everybody thinks, this little boy thinks that, oh, well, there's uh, creatures out there, don't want us to come out of the house. I think a spaceship went over, and then everyone starts pointing their fingers at each other, and then, oh, well, it's got to be him because, you know, he stays up late at night. And, and people start getting paranoid about things and accusing people. And I just thought, I don't, you know, how far do we degenerate into that? But uh, health threats or paranoia. So um, what what kind of uh, – so what, what, what do you see like, between now and, and uh, like in the next few months, uh, future future of logistics? And – also, and, and I guess because, you know, I had been thinking about that episode, Monsters Are Due on Main Street or Twilight Zone, and then it comes out. How long do you think, Will, because you're also an expert in uh, collective dynamics, how soon before people start really getting even paranoid about each other? We're starting to devour each other already. I mean, I, I hate to say it, but we are. We, in fact, we started before COVID nineteen even hit. So we've been devouring ourselves and uh, making a sport out of uh, out of attacking anybody who thinks in the slightest differently than ourselves. And that goes for all sides. I'm not. I'm not singling anybody out. Uh, uh, mm-hmm. the, the Twitter has become a sewer of uh, a, a sewer of discourse. 
uh, Facebook has become a uh, Facebook has become a, uh, a a place for memes and repeating other people's thoughts, but no real original thought uh, of any real sort goes on there. It's uh, it's actually kind of sad, but it's interesting at the same time. So I mean, uh, we're, we're already devouring each other. As far as logistics is concerned, you're going to see you're you're going to see the bankruptcies start to hit in this industry first, and that's bad news for everybody. Because as soon as the bankruptcies start to hit uh, large transportation companies, large logistics companies, then you're going to see a hit immediately land on the uh, land on the uh, on the rail system, which was uh, on life support to begin with. Uh, you're going to see a hit on uh, prices of consumer goods, which have to move by uh, truck or container all over the country. Uh, a hit on well, a hit on just about everything. It's 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 there, there's a whole lot of dominoes up there, and you knock one over, hmm. and it's going to take a lot more with them. And each one that falls has the possibility to knock over five or six others. So that's that that I, I I'd love to have a rosy outlook. However, and like I said, I'm hoping for a miracle. I'm hoping I'm hoping the hand of God will come down and say, "Thou shalt not starve to death." However. All I can do, uh, uh, is, all we can do, is take care of ourselves at this point and those who are closest to us. Um, I've made sure that we were well positioned so we can continue to meet salaries and uh, we don't have uh, we don't have any leveraged debt. Uh, uh, companies that are highly leveraged in debt, I think, are going to go under the fastest, and other companies will snap up that business and raise rates to the point where they can stay in business, or they too will go out of business. It's Unfortunately, a fact of life. So, uh, by the way, I've noticed that uh, Thomas Watson over there is getting a little fidgety, so I think I need to move over to him for just a moment and say, Thomas. I, I can't help it. It's, I, the, uh, I, it's I, the sciatica kicking. It doesn't matter how I sit. <laughs> hey, oh, no. Oh, no. I should have. You should have gotten no, the, no. Uh, the memory foam cushion. Okay. Yeah. Um, so... <laughs> Thomas, I wanted to talk to you about, and just wherever you want to start, um, so many people, fortunately, there are some people who are able to do their jobs from home. Um, so many, um, of course, when they talk about service sector, I think about things like, well, some of the restaurants are, you know, you can come and pick up things, or, or they'll hand it to you out the door, or deliver, or whatever, and then there are people with some office jobs who are able to work from home, not... Um, Everyone, but some. But do you think that? Um, how do you think that will affect us after after COVID nineteen? Uh, what what are you seeing? Like a, a you think this post sort of office space, or um, will people expect more from their employees? Like, oh, well, you did it then. No, you 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 managed to uh, work all day with your kids climbing on you for you know nine, ten, twelve hours to get the work done. Uh, Actually, I think it might. You, you might want to flip that. I think it'll work the other way around. Uh, judging, my wife fortunately retired from her job just as this all hit the fan, and uh, but she's been hearing from coworkers who are all now working at home. It's a classic service sector thing, and their question is, why couldn't we do this before? You know, their employers have been telling them for years, no, it's not practical. We we can't monitor things. They invoke OSHA rules. And now all of a sudden there's a crisis and we all got to disperse so we don't make each other sick. And they're all working at home and it works. It works just fine. They're productive 
kids are playing because they're not in school, you know, the pets are barking at them, and they're still getting their jobs done. And when this all subsides, and I don't, for for what it's worth, I mean, what the, the title of this is, you know, what, what happens after COVID. I'm not sure there's an after that you're going to be able to draw a line on. I think this thing is going to be a part of who and what we are going forward into the future, something the way influenza became a part of, you know, everything that goes on. Um, they're going to be getting ready to go back to work uh, when the restrictions are left, and they're not going to want to. And they're going to be looking at their employers saying, how come it works now, but now you're saying we all have to go back to our cubicles? Um, that's I, I'm, I'm really curious because I, I think it's going to be, you know, everybody knows who Rosie the Riveter is, right? You know, kind of emblematic mm-hmm. of women going into the workplace during World War II. World War II ended, the guys all came home, and they expected the wives to go back in the kitchen. And that didn't go over quite the way they expected it to. And I think it's going to be something, a milder version of that, where people are going to look at the job, the idea of a job, what, what a job means, where they work, you know, what a workplace is. And they're going, to, they're going to come back to their employers and say, you know, this is working. Why would we go back? Why would we change this back? Which would, yeah. of course, leave, you know, if they're all staying at home, who's renting the office space? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I would say, yeah, some jobs are different. Now, of course, as, a, as an entertainment publicist, yeah, a lot of my work has been, you know, wherever I've got a phone and, a, and uh, Internet access, I can work. And even when I've been contracted by people, uh, like doing um, all the years I did publicity for um, uh, HBO documentary premieres, you know, did it from home. And, of course, it's, I had a dog bark. You know, people don't want to think that you're in your home. They want to think that you're in some big tower in New York. So I just always take your dog to work day at HBO. And I always wondered how many people got there with my boss's boss and would go, that's so great. In the office at HBO, you know, <laughs> you know, because they want to think that you're somewhere else, but you got a dog barking. And then once or twice a year, I usually take up um, a short-term job where I do scoring of uh, uh, SAT essays or uh, or third-grade math, which let me tell you is no joke. Uh, but yeah, they know what how much I'm doing. They, I'm, I'm on a schedule. I have a break time, and they're able to monitor how much I, you know how many tests or how many essays I score. So, yeah, sometimes it can be done. But I know that the that employers like to see people there sometimes. But, and this, but this could be a good thing, too, because can... people working at home, they're more comfortable, they're more relaxed. Never mind COVID. I mean, every office job I've ever yeah. worked at, if somebody caught a cold, there was even when there were rules saying if you're sick, stay home, there was always somebody uh-huh. who thought, no, I need to be there, I need to be there, and then the whole office goes down. With it, you know, I think think there's a possibility of, you know, actually improving some of these things by dispersing the workforce back into their homes. But we'll see. But whether people do go back into an office um, or not, either way, or just um, people out doing regular things, Thomas, what do you, how do you think people are going to be handling concepts of personal space and privacy once the big danger seems to pass? Do you think that these habits will be kind of um, these habits will be kind of hard to break? Will they be somewhat ingrained in us? Will there be just that little bit of doubt like, uh Well, you know, because this was really such a shock Maybe to I'll our system. Hmm? Uh-huh. Given the, because this was such a shock to the system, I've seen people embrace the whole social distancing thing with a fervor. I mean, it's neighbors, friends, People that I normally hang out with, we're communicating via Facebook only because we don't all want to gather in one place and possibly be that one person that gets everybody else into trouble. 
And so people have responded, I think, you know, rather rather well to this. They're they're being responsible and they're doing it. The problem with COVID is because it's a novel virus, is that there's really not going to be a line we can draw that says it's done. We're we're out of we're out of the danger zone now. We're fine. And because we can't define that, I think these habits of social distancing and not shaking hands and that sort of thing will likely persist, but I don't think they'll be permanent. People want things to be back the way they remembered them. We all want it to go back to pre-COVID. You know, we, we don't want this nightmare to be here. And I think over time, people will relax and begin to, you know, not be so fussy about standing close to each other in a grocery store. You know, people will shake hands. They'll go home and wash their hands right away. But <laughs> but um, I, I think mm-hmm. over time, it will, as, as we become accustomed to the fact that COVID's here, and that we have to, you know, be careful with it. Maybe when we get a vaccine going, you know, which is another whole can of worms right there. But for a while, for the foreseeable future, until people get used to the fact that, you know, we need to keep our guard up, I think you'll see people, you know, being very fussy about don't get too close to me, you know. I, something something a, a acquaintance of mine did recently, there's a the old movie Young Frankenstein, at the very beginning, there's this mm-hmm. marvelous bit between um, Madeline Kahn and Gene Wilder where he's trying to say goodbye to her, and she's afraid that he's going to mess her up because she's going to this big party. And at some point, he tries to hug her, and she says, Taffeta, darling. And they look at each other, and yeah. they rub elbows. And, and uh, my, my crowd, before we actually got sequestering ourselves, my crowd was doing it. We'd, we'd look at each other and say, Taffeta, darling, and touch our elbows together. There will be some humor involved in it, too. People will make jokes about this. They'll make light of it uh, because they have to, because otherwise you'll go nuts. That's an interesting point. Uh, that's an interesting point, Thomas, uh, and something that uh, I hadn't really thought about until we were actually on the uh, on this call. Uh, uh, Eric, what do you think is uh, what do you think is going to be uh, what do you think is going to be entertainment's role in this? You're uh, you're involved with film and uh film production what do you think is going to happen as far as uh as far as entertainment at least as far as mass entertainment to help us deal with this new normal well we're already there in terms of health, in terms of the uh effect on society and i think largely in a positive way i mean those who have uh, access to high-speed internet are using the internet quite a lot for entertainment of every possible sort, and uh, you know, it's uh, the entertainment industry is uh, is periodically maligned by uh, by uh, politicians or you know special interest groups and so on and so on. But I mean, we all we all disseminate it to help us maintain sanity, to help us understand our world, to help us to. Uh, um, find peace or joy or, um, you know, to like, um, so we're seeing just an incredible surge in, uh, dissemination of, and, uh, of online, uh, entertainment of every possible sort up to and including shows like this, uh, which are informational in nature, but also entertainment. And, uh, so, uh, you know, the question is whether is, is when people run out of, <laughs> Um, the uh, the entertainment that they're used to getting because it cannot be produced quickly enough or at all in some cases while uh, the crisis is in its fullest swing uh, is what happens then. Um, but I think we're also looking at uh, in some ways a new 
uh, a new renaissance of uh, you know as as, as big uh, as bigger entertainment properties run out of material, uh, a lot of people will go back to um, older entertainment properties and also find new artists that they didn't they weren't aware of before, um, and that uh, I think can only be a good thing. Uh, it can only spread to some degree not only the wealth around but also give people a variety of entertainment experiences that they may not have even known existed before which can only give them greater perspectives on life. Personally, I'm waiting for Six Feet Back Baby, a coronavirus love story. <laughs> I, I'd, I'd totally do that movie. I'd totally Start do writing, Will. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, come on, Will. We, I'm sure you can get us to uh, to do this to do it at a Wild West Con in everybody's costume too. Everybody's got some kind of mask, uh, helmet, whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Personally, personally, I think that uh, that one of the uh, one of the harbingers of any societal change is change in uh, our changes in entertainment, specifically horror. If you look at different stages, if you look at different stages in American history, Western history, and in the uh, horror genre, we went from giant monsters in, uh, during the Cold War to, uh, to vampires during strong conservative movements to zombies during – and this doesn't say anything about uh, anything politically – but uh, to zombies during strong, uh, strong liberal movements and – it's what speaks to people. What speaks to people, and during the authoritarian uh, regimes, or during uh, during uh, difficult times, quite often we need a monster to focus on, to uh, fight against. I mean, is it really any? Is it really any wonder mm. that during the first Gulf War, that Harry Potter became such an overnight uh, overnight blockbuster as a movie? I think that we were all waiting for something, some personification of evil that we could fight against when it was so nebulous what was being given to us. By the way, I think uh, we've got a caller calling in. We're also going to uh, we want to hear the answer to that uh, from Eric and also um, and also from Mary. But we've got a caller. You guys ready for this? I was born. Anybody? Let's okay. go. Right. Go, for go for it. <laughs> all right, all right. Okay. Uh Will, if you would just reach over, please part the beaded curtain and uh let this this caller seems to be docked outside the bottle. Hi, welcome to Madame Perry Salon. Hello, what's poppin' people? It's your favorite hey, Polish cartoonist. My, my favorite Polish cartoonist, you. that's what I was gonna say. <laughs> Uh, yeah, uh, I am Peter G. I'm a I'm an animator and a cartoonist, and I've been listening to the discussion. I just I just felt an urge to try and jump in because there were so many questions that were starting to come to mind as I was listening, especially about. Well, I'm a cartoonist, so obviously I'm more interested in uh, the entertainment aspect of things. My regular job is I work in a warehouse, so I see things a little bit differently. So from a logistics angle, you're pretty much just waiting for everything to clear out. Uh, one thing that I wanted to ask you guys was, from the point of, of everybody working from home, and while it's working now, you know, we're doing it with our kids uh, climbing all over us, why can't we continue this? 
from the animation industry, it is very rare to get people to actually working from home because the studios don't trust them not to get distracted and do things, you know, like go out and like spend all day at the beach or whatever and just completely blow their deadlines. Is it possible that the reason people are getting work done, the system is working, is because with the lockdowns, nothing else is open, so there's no distractions, there's no movies, there's no going out to restaurants, there's no going out on road trips. People have no choice but to stay in work. I would be surprised um, if – this is Thomas. I would be surprised if uh, that did not figure into it, frankly. <laughs> Because there, there's, well, if, you know, it's hard for me to approach that because being a full-time writer, I'm self-isolated at home all the time anyway. Um, but, yeah, I can see where people having, you know, that's kind of a sad statement. i got nothing else to do. I might as well do my job. I'd like to weigh in on that a little bit, if I may. Uh, this, is, this is Eric. Um, I think that uh, I, I think that ultimately whether or not someone is able to be relatively self-sufficient in a work-from-home environment, assuming that their job uh, allows for that in terms of, you know, the, the work to be done and the gear needed to do it, um, is in part a, a personality issue in general um, and in part um, a management issue. And uh, to be quite frank, if you, you know, if, if uh, there, there are many tools to, uh, to keep in touch with, uh, monitor, um, you know, aid people in getting work done. Uh, there are many tools uh, for, for management to do that. And, uh, and ultimately, you know, in, we, we know very well that in traditional work environments also there are employees who slack and don't get work done well, and there are employees who kick butt and do it really well. It's, it's really, you know, I, I mean, it's there isn't that huge a difference, um, and uh, if it's if it's managed properly, and I think um, in environments where it's necessary, where it's uh, technically possible to work from a home environment, you're also adding the uh, factor of no travel to and from a job. Um, you're adding, you know, which which means that uh, there's perhaps less fatigue in the getting back and forth phase. There's less expense in doing that. Um, it, 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 if someone has the capacity and the uh, uh, the amount of room within their domicile to set up a, a good workstation, then they can customize that a bit to their own needs. Um, we're also expecting that, you know, not all jobs necessarily have to have a traditional nine-to-five work schedule. Um, some of them can be a bit more self-monitored, and, uh, and in certain environments, that's been extremely effective in, in experiments. It really just is it's a case-by-case -case basis, a person-by-person -person basis. And um, I, I think certainly within this particular environment, yeah, we, we are seeing there's generally less distraction. And some people have a really hard time with it, maybe because they have uh, children who are difficult to control or other environmental circumstances that make it especially hard. Um, but given perfect circumstances and assistance and making sure that you have a proper uh, set up at, at home uh, with a little bit of mental adjustment, there's no reason that a large number of people can't continue to do this on a regular basis with much lower infrastructure costs and not much less wear and tear on the psyche. Uh, I would agree okay. with that. Uh, uh, in addition to that, however, I think that if we go to more work from home, I had this uh, I had this argument with a uh, with the CEO of a uh, gaming group about 10, 12 years ago about whether it's better to have artists working 
uh, working from an office or working from home. His position was, I want them working from home because I don't have to provide for the upkeep of an office, and I can pay them piece rate. If they don't deliver, then they're not going to make any money. Now, that might be all well and good for the, uh, for, for the companies. Uh, heck, it's great for the companies, but it's horrible for the workers because what you've done, uh, working as a cartoonist, I'm sure you know that piece rate is a terrible way to earn a living. Uh, oh, working, yeah. working, uh, working in logistics, I can tell you it's a horrible, horrible way to make a living. If something happens to you and you get sick, you don't make money. I mean, there is no safety net in piece rate. You're basically a uh, basic, basically a subcontractor and ultimately responsible for your own well-being. I like it that way, but most of America would not. Also, I, I'd mm. like to hear Mary's thoughts on this because Mary is the financial whiz. Yes, yeah. yes, Mary, fine, yes. <laughs> Thank Get you. Cozies um, and, and, and pull up to the microphone here on the table. Sure thing. So I think the interesting thing about working from home is that I think it is going to have some kind of long-term effect on commercial real estate, just because, you know, as it's being pointed out, you know, a lot of office space currently is going unused and companies are currently, you know, still paying that rent and probably wondering, wait, why, when apparently our workforce can work from home? Of course, this only applies to certain kinds of jobs, you know, certain office jobs, et cetera. Um, I think even once things open back up and people are allowed back into the office, a lot of people are not going to want to, and a lot of companies even are going to want to reconsider, you know, why am I paying however much money for this big fancy Manhattan office when I could just have a rotating schedule where some people work from home and some people work in the office and maybe they switch off so that if there's something that really needs to be collaborative, you know, in the office, we can still do that. But, you know, for example, if somebody is just, you know, working on something that just involves a lot of desk work, they don't need to. Um, so I think it is going to shape the commercial real estate market in the long term. It's probably going to take some time for us to really see those effects just because, you know, these things tend to be slow. That said, I do think mm-hmm. some people do enjoy coming to the office for reasons outside of productivity. And I think it goes back to, I forget who said it, but it was a personality thing. Like, I think some people do thrive in having multiple people around, and even if you're not actively collaborating with them, something about them, that environment makes them more productive. So maybe what Cruising we'll see is, dates. you know, hmm? Cruising for dates. <laughs> yeah, I think what we might see in the future is, you know, more of a divide between, you know, people who thrive in the office will be in the office, and the people who thrive at home will be at home, and that could end up being better in the long run. I think also, uh, I absolutely agree, uh, Mary. I think also that as as individuals within a group, we work best when we can communicate with that group on a very local basis. So there are visual and auditory and even uh, mm-hmm. uh, even uh, senses of our, our sense of smell. I can't remember off the top of my head. Uh, but uh, uh, cues that we take that the same way that that birds will fly in a flock without ever really communicating that they're going to fly in a flock, but 
take cues off of each other and will maintain that to become a single organism. So companies are a single organism. And what do they all have in common? They're all part of that company. And when you are working in that organism, you get your best feel for what direction it needs to go, how it needs to go, what you need to do to keep it going by by being in contact with others within that company. If that's possible over the Internet, all the better. But I think that the Internet takes out something, that we need physical proximity in order to be happy, healthy people. Without it, we are tearing our hair out and getting very sick of our spouses. But not my well, wife. Well, my wife's I, think you, I think there's another uh, – mine too, actually, professional chef, in fact. But I, I think uh, I think it, it's it's important to know though that uh, you know we're talking about um, uh, jobs that can be done in an office environment. And you take, for example, much of the entertainment industry. Um, it you can't make a movie typically unless you're on a set with other people. You, you can't uh, you can't have a gallery show if you're an artist without a gallery and people at the gallery. Um, you can't uh, you can't do a play, um, you know, without people in the play. Um, and so th these are industries that, uh, and, and that's just the entertainment industry. I mean, there's many other industries, of course, that require uh, groups of people to work together uh, for a common goal in a one place um, and, uh, and to then produce materials that can be disseminated in lots of different ways. And, uh, you know, so I think, that on the other hand, though, if you have a, a, a multidisciplinary type of uh, product, uh, such as, again, take the entertainment industry, um, I need to go to a set to make a movie, but I don't need to go anywhere to work with a team to edit that movie. Well, and I don't need to go anywhere to work with a team to write that movie or, or do pre-production on much of the movie except for set visits and stuff or, or uh, prop building and so on. So, you know, there, there are points where there can be significant cost savings and also a significant say, uh, minimizing of risk, and typically the types of folks who do the jobs within the industry that are, um, you know, such as animators, for example, and such as uh, um, post-production editors and, and sound design, designers and so on work quite well all alone, uh, you know, tend to be uh, solitary, by my experience, tend mostly to be solitary workers who just love to kind of zone out and get it done. Um, so, you know, the, the more the more you can then move like office staff and so on to to a function where they're all working remotely, you're just basically saving money and adding efficiency, provided you've got the right personalities aboard. Well, there's also the factor of uh, of the for, from uh, from the production standpoint, you're absolutely right. But there's also pre-production. There's a reason you have things like writers' rooms because you need a bunch of people bouncing ideas off each other. And I also see this as an analog with business because a lot of your business strategies, your product development usually comes from a bunch of people interacting and just throwing ideas and running up specs and trying to figure out how to take this abstract concept and make it real. Well, but again, they, you know, that, that partially depends on the personality types and their, their way they best do workflows. But uh, I have, I have, I found that uh, that working with writing teams uh, is exponentially more efficient uh, through through video meetings. You know, thinking about different types of writing, I would be interested to see how this impacts the book publishing industry because unlike you know with a TV um, writer's room, book writing is a very solitary 
profession. Um, and I know we have a lot of writers on the line. I'm sure you can all attest, you know, for the most part, you're in a room writing alone. And yet in the publishing industry itself, you know, there's still a lot of traditional office spaces where, you know, editors come in and sit in this big old office and have physical stacks of paper there. Recently, though, like in the past 10-ish years, you've seen a lot of online-only small presses where literally you have editors all over the country just working from their laptops. And I kind of wonder if now that, you know, people are working from home um, more, you're going to start seeing that in the big houses as well. And that might actually help to switch up the publishing industry a little bit because right now you basically have to be able to afford a Manhattan apartment in order to work in big publishing at least. Um, and I kind of wonder mm-hmm. if it's going to open up more remote opportunities for people who might want to work in big publishing but don't want to move to Manhattan. Well, uh, I don't mean to sound argumentative, but as far as writers working uh, working uh, on their own, it's not always that way. Like, keep it, Okay, here's an example. I am not – keep in mind, I'm not a big fan of the show, but it is an excellent example of how the creative process works. And that's Family Guy with Seth MacFarlane. Your average sitcom usually has a staff of eight writers to help write the jokes and, and come up with the gags and the stories in that. Family Guy has a minimum of 24 at any given moment because there's so many jokes, and they're usually split in deep. So with Family Guy, there's a lot of shows out there like – not to sound insulting, but like uh, Young Sheldon or something like that, where you can see one person writing the script because it's all very focused and very together. But Family Guy has enough of a following that people want new episodes, and the only way to do these new episodes is with a writing staff that's basically three times the size of anything else out there. So for in the case of a show like Family Guy, writers working on their own in isolation is simply not going to work. It would it would torpedo the entire momentum of the show. So sure, I, I thought that Family Guy was in this case. extremely simple to do online. Yeah, I thought Family Guy was written by manatees. Yes, I understand that. Damn it, they weren't right. supposed to know that, Will. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, yeah, I, I mean, like I said, I'm not a fan of Family Guy, but what makes McFarland work is basically vaudeville. It's you do the joke, you do the gag, you move on. And, yeah, but I mean, being able to work teleconferencing, yeah, absolutely, but you're not going to have one person who's going to sit there and come up with the entire story from start to finish. It's going to take a collaborative effort to get this thing done. In this case, right, does not have to be done in person. Publishing industry, which is rather different than TV. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very different. Yeah, the uh, that, that and also I'd like. <laughs> yeah, also I'd like. Uh, I, I would disagree with the caller uh, just to a uh, just to a degree. Um, I think some of the most amazing collaborative effort that I've ever been a part of has been when I've been working with Eric, who's also on the call with us, when we were working on a screenplay together. It was a give and take, and it happened on two separate two separate sides of the nation simultaneously as we just bounced ideas back and forth. And uh, likewise, some of the most amazing, some of the most groundbreaking work ever to hit uh, the television screen uh, has come from a single author who then dealt with an editor or someone who knew what they wanted to go and was working from a Bible. I mean, let's, let's take a look at Amok time uh, or measure of a man. Uh, an, another uh, another great Star Trek episode. Uh, all I, of those written by a single individual. I could do you. I could actually do you one better than that. Breaking Bad. 
Breaking, Breaking Bad was one guy's vision, and he just nailed it. Mm-hmm. But I, 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 this is hyperbole. I really think Breaking Bad is one of the most significant accomplishments in, in television writing of the past 30, 40 years. Have you ever watched Gilligan's Island? Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Don't, malign. Don't malign Gilligan's Island, okay? My whole life is modeled after Mr. Howell. All right, yeah. everybody, all right. It's a joke. Okay. It's a joke. Keep, keep. <laughs> Eric, tell him to keep the shirts on. Um, keep, keep. Keep your shirt on. Don't get sore. All right. Respectable I'm going to just a moment. I got a couple of get, let everybody get get refresh their drinks. I'm not sure. I heard some. I heard some sound again. I don't know if anybody was breathing, hanging their head out the car window, or if it might have been uh, Will's uh, uh, crawfish talking back. But I'm going to stop just a moment and uh, give you a chance to refill your your glasses, and uh, I'll be right back in about a little over a minute. Has the mission been completed? You know that I have the greatest enthusiasm for it. So, Chuck, talk to us about Fisdale being the Knicks' new coach. What's your uh, thoughts on that? Well, well, I'll I tell you right now, Ernie, it don't matter who's going to coach this team. They don't got no talent on it. And I don't, I don't really feel I talk That's as truth. I don't feel I talk about the Knicks right now. Do you want to talk about lunch? No. <laughs> what would you like to talk about, Chuck? I've been listening to a podcast called Madam Perry Salon, and I think Jennifer Perry, she's a great host. I mean, she got all these bestseller authors, roster, all the dip comedians. What about people you that could, don't have rings? Here we go again. I got Real funny. Ah, Real funny. Ah, ah, but I think she's great, and I think people would love her show. She got a great laugh. She make, The laugh come out of nowhere, like an eagle come in there and just steal the whole show. It's, it's, it's a beautiful thing. It's not terrible. The next game changer in the men's fashion industry might just be around the corner with the upcoming launch of Mace in Style, a new international gentleman's fashion boutique store that will offer comfortable and fashionable designer-crafted clothing, accessories, jewelry, watches, as well as health and lifestyle essentials for men. Crafted by talented fashion artisans from various corners of the world, Mace in Style offers clothing and accessories for men of different shapes and sizes. From streetwear enthusiasts, the hip-hop street artist, the corporate powerhouse, the prepster, the jock, the rock star, the adventurer, to the all-American throwback, and many others in between. Mates in Style is inspired by the latest trends in fashion, which will help any generation achieve their desired style and look. Visit the pre-launch site now at prelaunch.matesinstyle.com to be a part of this inspiring fashion innovation. Prelaunch.matesinstyle.com I'm completely operational, and all my circuits are functioning perfectly. All right. Welcome back to Madam Perry Salon. I'm your cruise director, Madam Perry, and this is more. This is not going to be a three-hour tour, I can tell you that. But glad to have you all back here, and I'm here with my co-host, Will Furr. Uh, Also, Mary Fan, Thomas Watson, and Eric Schumacher. Eric Schumacher. Now, don't you wonder who can for that, Eric? Oh, yeah, I'll, I'll pay for you right away. Yes, yes, yes. Sister's got to turn a buck. 
All right. And uh, so, yeah, I want to get back with uh, especially Mary um, Fan about a couple of things, too. And also, you know, uh, Eric Schumacher, you are a filmmaker, actor, director. You've done a lot of uh, commercials. You've done, um, yeah, <laughs> let's see, you've played Wyatt Earp. Yes. And Doc Holliday. Am I right? Fact, uh, the film I played. And Doc Holliday. Yeah, and, uh, yeah in yeah. fact, the uh, film that I played Doc Holliday in, uh, Tombstone Rashomon, which was directed by Alex Cox, who did uh, Repo Man and Sid and Nancy and a bunch of cult classics, was just released last week on DVD. It is almost sold out on Amazon and has been getting a lot of really good reviews. I'm very happy about that. Well, all right. Well, this is something. Yay. Well, somebody sent me uh, a couple of messages here about you guys. So uh, if you're listening to the blog talk radio on this, um, on the description, I've got a link on their names. I've got a link to their website. And I've got some pictures of them down there. They're all good-looking people and uh, a picture of, of different things they do. But I will be sharing on all of my social media as Jennifer Perry as well as uh, Madam Perry Salon and on my Twitter and Instagram, I will be sharing their website, uh, links to things that they've done, everything they I will share with you so that you can find their books, their films, everything they do, because these, these are some fascinating people. I, I, I don't know how I got so lucky, but somehow I did. And, uh, and Eric, as I was going to say, you know, I'm here in Atlanta. Uh, I don't know if you noticed the accent. You might have thought I was from New York or somewhere when you heard me speak. <laughs> but uh, you know, you know, here in Atlanta, you know, we got a lot of film stuff going on, a lot of TV shows, and yes. um, my husband, you know, works for himself in satellite communications. So when it's not working, he joins me on game shows and stuff. Or um, I worked on Star Girl for the entire season, uh, Very cool. first season, and then even my dog worked on it one night. And uh, a lot of game shows and stuff like that, like the hot ones with the guy uh, with the hot sauce. What's his name? Sean Evans. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All of us. Uh, we're we're. Her- I'm even missing working on the uh, courtroom shows. You know, we were talking about the galleries, but we have uh-huh. to all sit in the galleries and look shocked at, the, at what people say on uh, paternity court or divorce court and all that. <laughs> right. Which, Very cool. Which will will I got to tell you this will. I know that you. Uh, I know you don't have to talk about it, but I'm sure that we've got a little downtime. You know, you're at Love's Truck Stop or wherever, and you're sitting back and relaxing, having something to eat, and you're watching. Um, you know, you're watching a couples court or something like that, right? Okay, you don't want me to tell anybody, but it's like I remember sometimes <laughs> I go there and I'll the silence spoke volumes. Uh, well, I'm sorry. He was eating. He was eating, okay? And I was, oh, and okay. I'll just go, forget global warming, climate change. Forget all this other stuff. We're not worth saving. If you've ever worked on a – you ever watched those shows, you'll come out and go, we're not worth saving. Just just let it go. Let it go. Give me my dollars and my, and my snacks and let me go. Um but anyway, uh, something that, that Mary and I had uh, we were communicating or talking about before tonight, um, here's two different things. One has been a 
thing or a fad or a lifestyle for a while, and then one is fairly new. Um, but Mary said, you know, we're talking about her. Mary was asking, what will the culture of minimalism, will this survive or after after a pandemic stockpiling? And then I think I'm going to go too, a little further than that, Mary, further back, because you remember all the preppers that were getting ready and stockpiling and everything? My mother, as well as the woman across the street, I noticed when they were moving, the neighbors across the street were moving out. I, my mother had a had a, a storage place in the basement that Dick Cheney would have envied. Okay, as far as food and paper plates and all kinds of stuff, the neighbor across the street you could she could have stocked a small grocery store with what she had. So there was all the stocking and the preppers, and then there's a big minimalism movement, and then now there's the stockpiling. Mary, what? How will, what will happen to the minimalism? <laughs> yeah, I just remember because um, you know not too long ago, Marie Kondo's Netflix show came out, and there was a huge debate about minimalism. Like, everybody seemed to think this was a great idea. Like, oh, my goodness, my house is too cluttered. I'm going to throw away anything that doesn't spark joy. And I recall there was a debate then about just what kind of thinking goes into the idea that, oh, I'm only going to have, like, five T-shirts and trust that if one wears out, I'll just go and get another. Like that implies a certain level of, I think, security in um, your circumstances and the future. And then suddenly, you know, this pandemic hit and that wiped away everything and everyone's stockpiling, kind of wondering, you know, once things start to go back to normal, will you see people starting to throw things out again the way they were before? Or are they going to think, hey, you know what, maybe before I wasn't hoarding, I was preparing. Um, and I think it's a, going to be a very interesting thing to observe. I'm not sure what the answer is. Mm-hmm. I think it will kind of depend on people's um, sort of social groups, if you will. I think those who are more secure, who sort of like the idea of, you know, this giant empty space where everything is meticulously chosen, you know, that implies a certain level of privilege. And, you know, you are going to have people doing that. But I think you're going to have people as well who will want to be prepared um, in case something else happens. Now that we've seen how things can go. Yeah, good point. And uh, and then a little further than that too, uh, Mary, I wanted to ask you about it. And seriously, because you know there's a, yes, the Marie Kondo and all that going on. And then I kept seeing things about Swedish death cleaning, um, or the people you know. And um, I looked at that as when my mother passed last uh, September. You know, we had no idea what kind of a hoarder she'd turned into. We knew that she wouldn't let us go around the house anymore, but we had no idea how how bad it was, how how much stuff she had. But um, I told my husband, let's do the Swedish death cleaning. That way, if one of us dies during this, we haven't got to deal with all this stuff. You know, which one of my girlfriends have already claimed which ones of my which parts of my wardrobe. Um, but do you think uh, since you you know you your expertly writing, Mary, it's also uh, finance. Do you think the pandemic will shape the global economic, or how do you think it will shape the global economic landscape? I think it will be interesting to see just because the pandemic is not hitting every region evenly. You know, some places are being harder hit than others, and that can have to do with some of it's just luck, some of it's, you know, what policies are already in place, some is what policies are being implemented. Um, it does look like the Eurozone is going to be especially hard hit, and I think that's partially just because of geography. Um, that's where the 
pandemic hit really hard and those industries are being hit really hard. Um, at the same time, you have some emerging markets that you know, don't have the structure in place to bounce back as quickly. Um, so you might see kind of more of a divide between the developed and the markets going forward than you have before. Hmm. Well, one thing, I guess this might be for to, to you and to Eric, um, I've got a question for both of you about um, – how we're how we've been had to shift to a lot of universal events and and uh, online interactions. But first, I've got another call. Somebody else is called uh, calling in here to speak to you. And welcome to Madam Perry Salon. I'm Madam Perry. Just tell us who you are. Uh, this is Marilyn Open. <laughs> hey, Marilyn. Hello, Marilyn. Marilyn from Maryland. Glad to be in the genie bottle with you all. <laughs> Well, you've got a special place here, and you're also my makeup artist. So I'm I'm I, I'm very much enjoying tonight's discussion. Um, I had a, a couple of uh, I just what you were just talking about about uh, prepping versus hoarding versus minimalism, and I think a lot of it I think should come down to practical, uh, you know, practical prepping, you know, keeping supplies that you know you're going to need as opposed to, you know, 40 pairs of black heel, high heel pumps, you know, with some with a bow and mm-hmm. some with, with studs, you know, that kind of thing. I think there was a lot of excessive shopping that was going on um, at one point, and a lot of it had to do with the work uh, clothes, work, work, uh, work demands which aren't there anymore. Um, I think that has changed even before this happened. Um, but I think the, sh- the thing of being prepared for things, you know, not sh- there were people shopping like as if they were uh, knowing that they could always go to the grocery store, no matter what happened. And, and, mm-hmm. and, and knowing and always having that sense of security, even if it snowed, because we, I live in D.C., Anytime it snows, people go, sh- go grocery shopping as if there's going to be no tomorrow. And then three, two days later, they get out, and the first thing they do is they go to the store again. They can't wait to get out. They can't wait to get out. And this, I think, will show people that they can l- live, you know, and, and do things more at home and, and, and kind of, uh, you know, be not quite so dependent on the outside of what their circle, their closed circle, which I think we've gotten away from, you know, but I think that that whole thing of, oh yeah, we have to be as minimal. I think that Marie Kondo thing kind of, I think, you know, I think in some ways there's some good and good to that, but I think that's from, that's from a different standpoint of having, uh, of kind of knowing that you've got too many things in a certain type of area that won't help you in a disaster. That won't help you, you know, if you have, you know, tons of certain types of clothes or certain types of things in your closet, that's not the, that's not what's going to help you get through if you can't get out for a month or they don't want you to get out for a month. Yeah, I think you have a really yeah, good point yeah. about um, that kind of fast consumption culture that we had, you know, pre-pandemic yeah. where, you know, people just buy yeah. things and not intend for them to last. Yeah, yeah, as well as things to be made to be, when they get broken, oh, well, we can just toss it down and get something else. Sometimes I think we've gotten too far into that, 
culture too. And uh, you know, when when whereas our parents' generation, at least from my parents' generation and a generation before, if you invested a certain amount of money into something, you know it was at least going to last at least five to ten years, if not twenty, because you you know that was how things were made. And they knew that people didn't throw their money around, so they were going to make it to last. And uh, yep. so I think that that had hopefully I I I I, I hope there were some things that I I think that there's some lessons good lessons that come out of this. Also, I just want to say about something that you all were talking about earlier about uh, some people being more collaborative and some people being more introverted. I have friends who are t- complete introverts. And and I'll, and I'll talk with them, and they'll say, you know, my life hasn't changed at all. This is how I live all the time. <laughs> and they're actually glad <laughs> that the people who are more extroverted are having to see how they are and how they're happy. And I have some friends in the middle who are usually more introverted who are saying, you know, I lo- love Zoom calls. I realize I need to see faces. I need to see, uh, you know, I need to see to have some socialization. And then there are other people who are like, I can't take it. I'm going crazy. I need to see my friends. I need to see the hugs. I need to this. And and, and it's funny because I, I had forgotten how years ago, growing up, and I had not heard that phrase, keep your distance. But it was something in uh, where people used to say that all the time. And it was actually was a good way if somebody was coming near you and kind of getting a little too close, whether it was an office situation, you could say, hey, keep your distance, you know. And you had this personal space. And there was something that I noticed over the last 20, 30 years where people started to get more in each other's spaces. And I don't know if that keeper distance thing was from the back back when, when people were, had more diseases and they didn't have the, the penicillin or something. I don't know. But maybe it had to do with, you know, avoiding sexual harassment. I don't know what it was. It was a, maybe a combination of a book. But it was something we got away from, and I said, you know what? I'm actually enjoying that, that aspect of it because I never liked the, uh, a lot of people hovering around me. I like my personal space. So, uh, so it's actually been, yeah, it's actually been a kind of an interesting thing to, to kind of see about myself, you know. And that's how I was yeah. raised: that people, and people kept their distance more. So, uh, there's some interesting uh, po- uh, points about all this. Now, on the other hand, you know when this is going on and you're kind of thinking and then you turn the news and then you're realizing the reality of the situation, the heaviness of the toll of the numbers. Those are the things that really make it hard, you know. So uh, I'd like to jump so, in anyway, here real quick. Yeah. If I may. Uh, so speaking uh-huh. to your first uh, to your first point, the uh, I think that minimalism may uh, may survive. It may not. It all depends on people's ability to maintain security. I, I, uh, right. Everybody everybody is scrambling back uh, to regain their uh, to regain their corgis first, and uh, to, uh, to, <laughs> to otherwise uh, retain their sense of security in what they have. And you're, right. you you see a lot of it. You you you're going to. I think you're going to see people stockpiling those things which they feel is most important in the space that they have. Uh, if they're smokers, mm-hmm. they'll start buying cartons instead of uh, single packs. If they are if they are insecure in their food, they will start learning how to can and jar food. If oh, they yeah. are drug yeah. addicts, if they are drug addicts, they're going to buy a full ounce instead of a dime bag. Uh, the uh, <laughs> uh, you, and, and then not that last. 
That, no, it's not an endorsement. I'm just I'm, I'm just speaking to it. And let's let's face it. There's a lot of I'm criminality out there. And yeah, that's okay. Uh, but uh, there, there's a lot of criminality out there, and those criminals are going to be looking for security in their lifestyles as well. And yeah. uh, that may mean that they're going to be going after bigger scores. They're going to be going. I, I mean, I don't know about you, but I've seen a huge uptick in online attacks. But uh, oh yeah. But that's just my two cents. Well, I think, I think, and you make an excellent point. You know, uh, I'll tell you what my my uh, uh, my, my wife uh, went to uh, get her sewing machine repaired the other day, and there and there is there is a local sewing machine repair place that is open and taking you know no contact uh, uh, repairs, and uh, they are they have a huge backup because everyone's getting their sewing machine repaired right now. Yeah. you know, to help not only to help make masks, but uh, for a variety of other reasons. I think what one thing that we're going to see to something that will very aptly touched on there is uh, we're going to see less of a consumerism culture than we've had over the past several decades um, because people are going to get used to uh, using uh, recyclable resources or, or or making their own resources or finding their own. I mean, the fact that so many more people who weren't are cooking now and sharing oh, yeah. recipes and so yeah. on. People are going to continue to do that when they, especially the ones who enjoy it and who realize how much money they're saving. It's not to say they shouldn't eat out. It's not that you know when when it's safe. It's not to say that they right. shouldn't engage in consumerism. Right. But yeah. once these habits become a thing, and as you know, as Stephen Covey would say, it takes about thirty days to build a new habit if you consistently do the same thing for thirty days. It becomes right. habitual typically. Well, it's it's more than thirty days for a lot of people, and uh, it's going to yep. be hard to make that shift back into. So because of that, certain industries are simply not going to exist the way that they used to because they simply, uh, you know, what what was once considered a need isn't anymore. Um, in other cases, if an industry, any industry uh, that is able to, given changes in circumstance, knows anyway that as as interest in things die or as different uh, uh, societal uh, interests change, you've got to adapt if you want to survive. And if you can't do that, either because the changes in society are simply too too much of a hard shift uh, or if you can't adapt your processes efficiently enough, you're not going to have business. That's just the way it works. Well, if I can jump in real quick, because the problem is, is that there's still a lot of people that are still locked into a convenience mentality. Uh, out here, I live in Illinois, and like when, when the lockdown here in Illinois first started, I would be going into the grocery stores, and like anything that was frozen or prepackaged was gone. Uh, you know, you could buy the component pieces to make macaroni and cheese. That was all over the place. But a frozen, a frozen package of macaroni and cheese that's barely bigger than a sheet of paper and cost 15 bucks, completely gone. Uh, chicken soup, that was gone. You could still go and make your own. Let's, let's be honest, chicken soup is not a tough thing to make. But anything that was prepackaged was history, and the stuff to actually make things. And because I know how to cook, it wasn't a setback for me. But for a lot of people, they are. I don't see a lot of people necessarily coming out with this with new skills. I think it's just something that they might be doing just to get by. I mean, my mom, uh, I'd occasionally hear from my mom telling me, it's like, well, Pete, you live on your own. You need a wife or you need somebody to fall back on or something <laughs> like that. She lives in Florida. 
she's one of the people who's complaining about the lockdown because she can't go to a hair salon and she and she doesn't you know she can't go to Olive Garden on the weekends. And meanwhile, I'm online. Telling I'm an actor. Think how I feel about hair salons. Sorry, go on. <laughs> <laughs> If, if, I can ask, if, if I can ask real quick, what part of uh, Illinois do you live in? Do you live around Chicago? Yeah, I live I live about a half hour south of Chicago. Okay, so I, uh, I just I just want uh, I just want to uh, point out that right now you have one and a half days of supplies for that area before everything runs out. And that's that's mm-hmm. everything in fuel, in food, in electricity, clean water, one and a half days worth of supplies. Uh, if there was a breakdown in Victor Hugo's world brain or what we call the Internet, um, the uh, you would have one and a half days and it would all be gone. So <clears throat> although although uh, I don't I don't prescribe to anyone that they should be religious. Uh, I do say that the Mormons have the right idea that you should have several weeks worth of supplies built up just in case, because when mm-hmm. when when the when, when the emergency hits and it will hit, uh, you don't want to be one of those people running to the grocery store trying to find uh, trying to find hamburger and only being able to walk away with spam. Mm-hmm. Spam gets a bad rap. I don't know. I, can't, I carry spam singles myself. I love it. But you know, the, the comment was made about uh, convenience food disappearing. Just as a curious aside, um, here in Tucson, my wife and I were inconvenienced in the other direction. What we saw vanishing was stuff people needed to cook: beans, rice, uh, lentils, you know, flour, sugar. It was it was really kind of spooky. I expected you know all the frozen pizzas to disappear overnight, and what we had trouble finding was the stuff we would need for basic. Uh, food preparation, if you were going to bake something, bake bread, um, you know, it was the fresh stuff that, that got hit hard. It rebounded, but it was kind of unnerving to see that and, and sort of illuminating to realize that there's there's more capable cooks in my area than I expected. <laughs> but it's, it's in, just Pennsylvania, in Pennsylvania, it was 25-pound bags of rice. Pardon me? In, well, I said in Pennsylvania, it was 25-pound bags of rice and beans. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, just it depends I'm on where you were. If you live near, if you live near Eric Schumacher, I would go yes. when he goes to the grocery store because he does have experience. He has long. He's a longtime student of Chinese martial arts, and he has martial arts in self defense. <laughs> I'm just saying, if I were in Tucson, I'd be going to the grocery store when he goes, just just in case. Well, thank you. <laughs> I, I think <laughs> that, that's good. Yeah, no, I'm I do want to also so I, I keep I, that in mind. <laughs> one thing I, I would want to take Eric shopping with me. I, I'll, I'll tell yeah. you one thing that I, that I have learned uh, and I've used very effectively also in film is I have a special kind of glare, um, which I get I get hired as an actor specifically for that glare that uh, I have been told will make people turn and run. <laughs> Although personally, I think that uh, I think that the biggest asset on this panel to shopping would probably be Mary Fan because she's a trapeze artist and she can swing down and grab any food that she needs. <laughs> Holy crap, we're going shopping, Whoa. Mary! <laughs> oh, there's an image. It'll be, it'll be, it'll be like the scene of Mission okay. Impossible where the guy drops up the ceiling. Now this is a movie that you made. Oh, <laughs> just I'll grab your while well, you run across the top of the shelves and grab everything. <laughs> yeah, wow, I, I, I just pictured Mary 
<laughs> I'm picturing Mary like hanging onto the car, onto the uh, the handle of the cart, and then and then bending over backwards, and her foot, her her delicate toes just pick up that perfect um, <laughs> apple or or bag of grapes and flips it over to the cart as she reaches over. Mary, this people. is going to make such um, a gr- such a viral YouTube video. I'm telling you right now. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if you guys remember the early stop. days of the uh, uh, I was going to say, I don't know if you remember the early days of the internet. There was a website called Ninja Burger. It was, you know, delivery 30 minutes or we commit seppuku. And it was about this fast food place called Ninja Burger that delivered with ninjas. And they specialized in things like, like high crime areas and stuff like that because they were the only ones who could get in and out. And it's like, yeah, that's kind of like grocery shopping. <laughs> Hire yourself a ninja. Let me. <laughs> All right, Mary Fong, grocery ninja. All right, uh, and then and then you got and then you got Eric Blair, and that's all all you gotta have. Um, all right, I'm gonna stop just a moment too um, for people listening to, and thank you. Um, also, Marilyn was here. She she's gone back to um, working on makeup uh, for somebody, but I want to uh, give a little. Uh, thank you again for this panel, but also give a little bit of uh, each of their bios. Um, Eric Schumacher. Eric is best known for his work as an actor in projects like Wyatt Earp and Fox's TV, Legends and Lies, The Real West, as Doc Holliday in the feature film Tombstone Rashomon, uh, directed by Alex Cox, who did Repo Man, Sid and Nancy. And uh, he played Agent David Kiljoy in the widely critically acclaimed web series Zon, the alien interviews, and uh, also pompous newscaster Frank Mann in the comedy web series Crewing Up. But he's got a lot more here. But I'll, I'll, of course, I'll be sharing his. Um, I'll be sharing everyone's uh, websites and information. William Hare, play uh, author, playwright, poet, adventurer, bon vivant. William R. Hare. If you. If you just if you decide you want to go to the beach, maybe while nobody's there, you want just a little relaxing beach read, um, just something a little bit of light light novella. Get his book Five Thirty Return. You know, just a little bit of under the hair dryer type reading. Uh, isn't that right, Will? Oh yes, it's it's definitely something light and airy and fun. A romance that's perfect for those uh, for for those quiet times when you just want to be alone with your thoughts. No, really, it's a. Uh, it's, to, to, to be honest, it's a, it's it's a noir, hard, hard hitting, gumshoe novel. I'm dying and, over here. And now. I was about to say, the soundtrack would be by the Swingle Singers, you know, but but I, I think it's described it a lot better. Okay. <laughs> uh, Mary Fawn, uh or Mary Fan, you've got so much going on. Uh, you're you're quite a prolific writer. I don't know how. I know you've studied music. Uh, yeah. Trapeze artist. You uh, financial expert. Uh, your website, maryfan.com, M-A-R-Y-F-A-N.com news. Um, I just I, I don't know where to start reading all the list of all your books and uh, your appearances and things that you're doing. Uh, let me just read some of these. I'm going to read just one bit of a review of one of your books, and uh, this was from uh, this is from Blue Ink. It says, although partially nodding to Brave New World, Logan's Run, and the Hunger Games trilogy, the science fiction dystopian YA novel Starswept. Mary Pam 
<laughs> is its own blazingly unique creation. Prolific author Mary Fan, 12 published books to date. I don't know when that was written, but at that time you had 12. You probably got, what, 50, 52 now. Uh, spins a riveting tale against the backdrop of intergalactic human trafficking, brainwashing, corporate greed, freedom fighters, and the backstabbing culture of an exclusive performing arts academy. The action never flags as mounting suspense meets Romance meets high adventure. That sounds pretty much like um, real like life. The bio I have on uh, Will Will Her. But anyway, <laughs> like. <laughs> and let's no see, relation. What else do I? <laughs> no relation. <laughs> okay. And uh, let's see. Uh, uh, you guys are killing me tonight. Just take uh, a moment, catch your breath. <laughs> Desert, Desert Stars, yes. Um, focus, find your center. Thomas Watson, ah, focus, yes, and the F. My husband's texting me, how much longer? <laughs> Keep the corgis out of here, okay? All right. Um, I think we have a mutual friend, David Summers. Yes. Terrific guy. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Bunch of us here in Tucson know David. Yes, I saw him. I just too. finished his book, uh, the, Arch- the, um, the the Astronomer's Crypt. I just finished that. Um, yep. I got I'm that just about him, to start uh, it. <laughs> in March. Oh, really? Okay. Well, let me tell you what happened. <laughs> I, I directed the anyway, book trailer uh, and co-starred in it. Who was that, Eric? That was me, yeah. I directed and co-starred in the book trailer for that book. Fantastic! Wow. Okay. Check it out on, uh, on David's yes, website. Uh, all right. You uh. Okay, I'll be sharing that too, and I'll also I'll also tag you with it. Um, Thomas Watson, author, uh, expert and and uh, plant life biology, uh, amateur astronomer, but you've got a lot of books about astronomy as well as science fiction books too. Anyway. To, uh, to get a little shout out about everybody's provenance there uh, on the panel. So, I was asking before, and this is sort of to uh, Mary and to Eric, for some of you before the show. Okay. Um, we were talking about the difference. Okay. Uh, Mary and I were talking about how everybody's pretty much gone to virtual events and how will this impact Virtuviews' online interactions. And I'm thinking also, too, all these television sh- uh, shows pretty well adapted to, um, uh, like, like the late-night host, you know, Fallon and uh, Seth Meyer and uh, Kimmel, everybody's doing their show um, at nighttime. Also, um, and this is one thing that Eric and I were, you know, kind of batting questions back and forth were how the pandemic affected different parts of the entertainment industry, like stage performers, musicians, painters. As, well, we touched on that already, I know, Eric, but also how do you think the entertainment industry will adapt in a relatively short term to account for the pandemic? And, you know, like I said, um, I haven't, uh, you know, I certainly haven't had any work, especially with games and the court shows that cram you in there. The uh, TV series and stuff that I've worked on, you know how they are. You, you're sort of in one room, you all hang out together, then you eat, and then finally, you know, somebody calls you out to do something. Um, 
and tells you how to stand and where to look. But, you know, that's not so bad. You can you can keep some distance there, and you can bring your own clothes if you follow their instructions. But um, but that's just a tiny part of it. So between you, Eric, Mary, either one of you want to start with where you see how will this affect entertainment in the long run? Because there's got to be a lot of people losing money too. There are uh, Mary, Mary. Do you want to start off there, or shall I? You can go ahead. Very good. Well, I think uh, you know there there are so many different aspects of this to consider. Um, for one, um, you know, it's not just the cameras being pointed at at, at the, the lead stars. It's you know it, there there are so many different types of shows. Um, there are also the crew who make those shows, and sometimes they need to be in close proximity to do certain things technically. So the short-term plans, and I'm just I'm just talking about the film and television industry. The short-term plans that I'm seeing floated right now are uh, involve quarantining entire staffs and all performers uh, for six weeks prior to a shoot. Um, absolute and total quarantine, food delivered inside hotel rooms for two solid weeks to make sure everyone's safe, testing for everyone, assuming, of course, that can be made available and accurate, and then extreme safety protocols on sets um, where possible. But, you know, there's, I mean, how are you going to make a, how are you going to do a fight scene or a love story when nobody can touch each other <laughs> or get close to each other? So you've got to find what, and for that matter, you know, so these are interesting concepts that people are coming up with, but they, they leave out some very significant factors, which is that first off, the, the, the budgetary strain on a production that that would encompass is massive. That's two extra weeks where you have to basically provide all forms of sustenance and 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 living for for a, an entire staff, and that also supposes that everyone um, is able to uh, make their living entirely from film industry work, and that they're able to be paid enough during that time period that their own bills don't fall short. And you know, not everyone is a highly paid um, megastar. Um, in fact, the great majority of performers who uh, you know who are day players and, and shorter term actors are are also working other jobs to stay afloat. Uh, and the same with many crew members. Um, so it's a it's a very there's a lot left to be figured out. I think uh, productions with smaller number of staff are going to go first. Uh, independent productions may, to some degree. Uh, have, a, have an advantage there, but will not be able to, uh, when they're smaller budget independent production, will not be able to do the quarantine thing that Hollywood, big Hollywood can. Um, and uh, I think there are other ways that in the short term, for example, theater productions may be able to get back online quite literally uh, by going online um, and by distancing people and you know using uh, video to uh, to close distances between people, uh, if not in, in reality, but uh, but appear in appearance. Um, musicians are already starting to play live concerts from their homes, um, so some semblance of that will probably happen more and more. Um, and slowly but surely, as there if there is a point where we reach. Uh, a feeling of, of more security that less people are going to be infected by interpersonal interaction. We'll see it get closer to closer, closer and closer to the normal, um, so to speak. But uh, in the short term, a lot of things just are not going to be able to, to function the way they used to, um, if at all. And uh, also, a lot of the auxiliary um, aspects of the entertainment industry. I mean, if you 
have ever performed. I've performed in theaters before, and uh, and I know very well that audiences will go to a theater. They'll get dressed up to go to a theater. They'll group together. They'll buy refreshments. They'll leave the theater. They'll go to dinner. Um, so restaurants and and all kinds of other industries thrive on the spillover from entertainment events. Um, you know, there and that and, and that's just a that's just one aspect of many different. Uh, sub-organizations that, that survive and thrive on, uh, on because the entertainment industry exists. So we'll see a harder economic hit from the entertainment industry than most people who aren't in the industry will realize. Um, and, uh, you know, hopefully there will be some ways to adapt to that um, by perhaps, uh, um, you know, having video events for things and discounts for food. I mean, you know, again, we'll get creative and we'll find ways to, to keep things moving um, to some degree, but uh, it's just not going to be like it was for a really long time, and there's still going to be that fear for a very long time, I think, about, uh, you know, uh, that, that awareness that maybe you're taking a, a chance uh, with every uh, with every piece of work you do. And I think it'll be interesting to see how attitudes toward online interactions shift um, the more we go into this sort of post-COVID world, um, because it's been taking some time for online interactions to get the same kind of respect that in-person ones get. You know, you hear all the time, oh, you know, your online friends are your real friends, online dating isn't real dating, online whatever isn't real whatever. And because this pandemic has sort of forced everybody, even those who used to disdain online interactions, to interact online, I mean, you were already starting to see this beforehand, that, you know, as online interactions became more and more prolific, people were starting to acknowledge that, yes, there is value to them, yes, they are real interactions. And I think this pandemic is really just accelerating that trend. And even when we come out of it, you're going to see a lot more acknowledgement that online friends are real friends and online interactions should count in a way that's similar that in-person ones do. I mean, obviously, it's not going to be completely the same, but I think you will see more acceptance there. I think uh, I think that Mary is right. However, I think that the prevalence of online interactions also, also shows us uh, shows a major weakness in our society that we are so reliant on the internet for so many things, for our entertainment, for our social interaction, that a strike to something like May West, the infrastructure on the uh, on the West Coast, or May East, the infrastructure on the East Coast, could absolutely devastate society. I can tell you that right in the middle of this uh, right in the middle of this crisis, I lost phone service for 15 minutes. And I stopped and I said, is this an attack? Because if it is, it is the most deviously successful attack anybody has ever made. Because there's no way I could wow. call, there's no way I could coordinate uh, moving, uh, moving goods and services across the country. There is no way that I could even contact somebody to find out what was wrong. And luckily, it all came back. But at the same time, I mean, imagine if uh, imagine if those who do not particularly like uh, like us or like our way of life or like what we stand for, for whatever reason, decide you know what this is a really good uh, good way to take something out. I mean, let's not forget on 9/11, not 9/11 took out the major trunks that uh, the major internet trunks. I, I was actually working in uh, in internet at that uh, uh, at that time. Took out the major internet trunks for all of New York and New Jersey, and it was an absolute madhouse. People were ready to tear people apart because they couldn't get their internet born, uh, and uh, the, or they couldn't reach the stock market or what have you. So. Uh, 
But uh, so uh, that that that's all I had to say. Uh, and let's also not forget that uh, that with power comes corruption, and it is always possible that this absolute reliance on the internet is going to lead to corruption, much in the same way. Uh, much in the world, with deference to uh, to China, that the CCP has used the WeChat app to control all of society in China. Well, so Will's, Will's another... observation, Will's observation wow. of of that being a vulnerability, it does kind of have a flip side to it. Something I've become very aware of. You know, yes, people are probably over dependent on the internet and that sort of thing, but I know a, a, a significant number of people. Um, who are not accustomed to not having the social interaction on a daily basis. And I think they would be in a seriously bad spot if they did not have the Internet, did not have Facebook, could not Skype. Um, so, you know, there, it's, it is a huge vulnerability. Somebody could do us a great deal of harm hitting that. But at the same time, there's a lot of people out there who are in a better place right now in this situation than they might have been. Well, and there's another factor to consider, though. Uh, I don't know if you guys check out like NASA's website. They have a they have a satellite pointed at Earth that shows it at 24 hours a day. And when this portion, when the United States is dark, you can actually see lights from the city centers and stuff like that. Most of the southern U.S. is completely dark, no electric lights, no nothing. And these people have no access to internet. So part of what concerns me is the idea of oh, the internet can help enable social networking. That what about places that don't have the infrastructure for the Internet to begin with? You know, the impoverished place, you know, the south where the infrastructure doesn't exist. What happens with those people then? They actually have lots of Internet. I think you'd be surprised. I travel through the south quite a lot. I think you'd be very surprised at the level of technological uh, uh, level of uh, technology that you have available in the deep south and the south. I'm sitting in the deep, deep south right now, not far from uh, New Orleans. If I drive 50 miles to the west, I will be in the middle of nowhere still as far as everybody's concerned. However, just about everyone has satellite Internet. Everybody's got uh, their telephone Internet. Uh, I think you'd be extremely surprised how, uh, how advanced society is here. I think people, people in the big cities tend to think of, uh, tend to think of the bohonks out in the sticks as being backwards or with three teeth. And a lot of times that's true. But... Um, the uh, but, but but the truth of the matter is everybody makes do with what they what they can get and satellite internet is a real big thing still things like HughesNet even DirecTV uh, offers uh, satellite internet. Okay. Well, I mean, I wasn't it's trying right. to like. Will, Will say it's that. not like we're in. It's not not like we're in England, Will, where they where they've been burning down the cell phone towers because of the evil 5G. Oh <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, I, mean, I wasn't. I wasn't trying to imply that, like, the South is backwards or anything. It's just that the last I had heard, the infrastructure wasn't there. I guess I hadn't considered the, uh, the wireless aspect uh, making up for that. But, like I said, it's just I have concerns about places where this is not as immediately available as all. Yeah. There's yeah, still you know, a lot of people down here in the South. I'll start ahead. Mm-hmm. No, as I said, you know, Peter, you know, uh, Peter G., you know my husband um, – works in satellite communications um, oh. globally. You know, no, I didn't know that, actually. No. Antennas and um, or a lot of their clients, the companies work for, are either you know military or broadcast or um, maybe some NASCAR or whatever so they can get information back and forth. Uh, so, yeah, he, he spent his our, our marriage around the world um, building satellite antennas and remote places in Africa and stuff. So, 
Yeah, and, and especially the, the companies he works for are doing contract work that are doing things for the government. The government says this is an essential project, so they don't stop. So, yeah, nothing, <laughs> and nothing's going to stop, but that's all. But enough about me. Uh, Will, <laughs> you were saying? Oh, uh, I can't even remember what I was saying at this point. I was too interested in you and your marriage over the Internet. <laughs> well... Once you you get it lost for words, yes, Will does that to people. (laughs) (laughs) I don't. I don't. Well, it's it's not a loss for words. I still don't know what I should say. Which one? uh, What I want to let go now? You know, we said it was like, like we were. uh, Somebody's been happy to stay married thirty-four years, and you probably lived together. Maybe yeah, I don't know. Maybe a couple of years if you totaled it all up. I said, because it's it's like it's like having an affair more than being a being married. It's like I'm Brenda Starr and he's Basil St. John off in the jungle looking for the black orchid serum. He comes back, (laughs) and then and then there comes a time when then people first of all people say, oh, you laugh too much to be married, which I think a lot of you folks here have the same situation. And then there's a time when he goes, is it time for me to leave? <laughs> but that's all, Will. That's all I was going to say. Never mind. <laughs> he makes me is laugh. Is that a pregnant pause? <laughs> <laughs> Not on this end. Mary, help me. <laughs> Mary, say something. Anything. <laughs> Talk about that trapeze so, again at the grocery store. <laughs> I just want to bring up something around access. So, you know, we were talking about infrastructure, but I think even when the infrastructure is there, when it comes to Internet access, there is also the financial aspect that sometimes gets overlooked, which is that not everyone can afford to have, you know, high-speed Internet, and that can hamper their ability to interact online. And I think this pandemic is showing that, you know, with schools moving all to, you know, Zoom classes and such, you might have kids who physically can't do that. You know, if they come from a low-income household and their teacher says, oh, just, get on your laptop and go on Zoom, well, what if they don't have a laptop? You know, what if there's one computer for the whole family because that's what they can afford? Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, um, the question of access has been brought up before, but this pandemic's really highlighting, you know, how important it is that, you know, it's almost, it almost becomes more of a utility. You know, it used to be just kind of a luxury of sorts, and then it became more common. It became more and more necessary. So you can't just say, you know, Mm -hmm. oh, the Internet's nice to have. It's almost a must-have for most households. It clearly is, and yeah. I think we're also, you know, there's also the consideration of uh, there's still uh, large, there's still portions of the of the country that don't have access to high speed internet at all. There are uh, or, or a very spotty access. There are, and there are many other countries in this in this world that where it's virtually non-existent or extremely difficult to come by, and uh, you know that's uh, this is a global a global issue, um, you know, and that's. Uh, uh, and we're a much more interdependent, interconnected world for everything. Um, so it's that's something that uh, I think, you know, as, as as a global society, we clearly need to deal with and make better. Yeah, and access yeah. to the Internet might become more of, you know, it's not so much, you know, access to entertainment like television, but more like access to water or electricity, like a necessity to live. Yeah, and yeah, yeah especially if uh, if you if you have a service that tends to go down when you least expect it, you know it's oh sorry it's peak time so we got to throttle you what? Yeah, you know, it's I, I I like to tell the joke that 
you know, the most secure computer is one that's not connected to the internet. That's why I recommend Time Warner Cable. <laughs> I would like to. I would like to uh, interject that. Uh, I would like to interject that I keep in touch with uh, some some of the member, uh, the poorest members of society, uh, members of the traveler community, uh, those people who ride the rails, uh, who uh, the, the, the people who are standing on corners with signs. Okay, and do it professionally. Uh, not 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 because I, I aspire to that, but just because I like to keep my keep my ears open to everything. And I can tell you that they all have uh, they all have access to the internet. They all have their free phones. They're all posting on Facebook, and and uh, they're actually all watching out for each other, making sure that they're all surviving this, uh, just simply because they're the only ones who care about them. That's both destroying and comforting at the same time. I was going to say, there's there's an indictment of modern society for you right there. Yeah. But, uh, I mean, uh, the the, the the majority of those is going to be... Sorry, man. Go go ahead. Well, well, I think that, you know, you're absolutely right about that. And and, uh, having done a little bit of work with uh, with homeless communities in the the past, it's uh, it's another, you know, many people are we're already a paycheck away from homelessness, many, many, many people. And, in fact, uh, one of the largest homelessness, homeless communities uh, is, uh, if you can call it that, is in Los Angeles, which is, you know, the, the epicenter of the, mm-hmm. um, of the film world. And, uh, you know, there, there, there's a massive number of people who have gone to, to that city in particular to follow their dreams, and, and, you know, and it's an extraordinarily difficult pathway to take and, and ended up homeless. And... Uh, um, and so, you know, with with the incredible instability that's come in income on top of that uh, right now, the odds are there will be a lot more homeless people. And, you know, they, they, are, they are also potentially, I mean, you know, they can catch a virus like anybody else. Um, it's uh, our, as a society, our lack of focus on making sure that homelessness as a problem disappears in a compassionate and right way is uh, is now showing itself in even greater ways and because uh, and, and we're still as a society not particularly paying attention to that but I'm sure we will as more people that we know who weren't homeless become so yeah I think you're right no I uh, the, the, the people who I tend to keep in touch with generally are are homeless I hate to say this and it's not an indictment of anybody and it certainly it's not uh, it's not all pervasive but there's a huge movement of people who became homeless strictly by choice who decided that they were going to they were going to walk away from society and live the bohemian lifestyle and if that's the way they want to live more power to them and uh, that, the tra- that that's a lot of the traveler community certainly uh, certainly there's a large number of people who are homeless not by choice but I think that, that that entire lifestyle is pretty much going to go by the wayside. They're going to look for ways that they can – because, that, let's face it, charity is just not going to be there as it was. Uh, we're, we're looking at a major economic crash uh, from my viewpoint. Agreed. And, yeah, and, and, and yeah, that, that, that is one side of it, and then there's a second. So, yeah, sorry, please go ahead. Oh, no, no, no. Because, you know, just what, what you were saying, too, about people who do that by choice. Um, well, just last Monday, my guest was uh, Victoria Price, and she writes um, a lot of inspirational books. 
And she's also uh, also wrote a memoir of life with her father, who was Vincent Price. And she said, you know, my friends call me homeless, but I chose to be home free. You know, I think she'd had a, some financial ups mm-hmm. and downs in her life, so I think she decided just to live in a big, I don't know, some kind of a big camper van, some kind of – she lives on the road. You know, she says, I could do my work. I could do everything. I've chosen to be home free. I'm not going through that again. So there is – well, in the in the late eighties, when I was wandering around as a journalist, that's that was my life. I mean, I lived out of a duffel bag. I mean, it is not something to be looked down on, but at the same time, it's mm-hmm. not exactly Western society this uh, right around this time. It's a rejection of Western no, society for more freedom. Yeah, exactly. I think I've heard that too. Julie Slick was on here. She was a um, a bass player with with bands. I mean, you, surely you guys know who King Crimson is, right? Oh yeah. Yeah, she plays she plays bass for uh, Adrian Blue and also for uh, Crimson Project and so forth. And she said, I got so much work to do with my own stuff and with Crimson Project and all that. She goes. It was pointless for me to pay rent. I don't have an apartment, <laughs> and that's pretty much the thing. You know, she's got her base, and, her, and I guess, and a, and a roll around suitcase and a duffel bag. So, yeah. So, if somebody, um, but, but still, even a situation like that, you know, because all of her work is live performances, and you know, I mean, I, indie, people don't make that much money off of record sales anymore because. That's why uh, uh, Todd Rundgren had a song on White Night that said, "Buy my tea, buy my hoodie. You can bootleg the music, but you gotta buy, but you gotta buy a shirt." You know, they don't make that much money off of it. Uh, but anyway, I wanted to say too, thank you so much. Thank, we're we're coming at the end of two hours, and um, thank you guys all so much. Mary Fan, Eric Schumacher, Thomas Watson, uh, Will Hearn, and also Marilyn Opus from Maryland and Peter G my favorite Polish animator, cartoonist for calling in. I want to ask you to get on something, uh, to end us with a good note tonight. And, again, I'd love to have each of you back on separately just to focus on your brilliant work because I am just in awe of each and every one of you as well as being so grateful that you were so generous with your time and your expertise uh, for me and my listeners tonight. Um, but let's to end. I want to ask Thomas. Thomas, if we've got our we've got our beverages and our snacks that we bought and hoarded, and we're just taking them out a little bit of time, and we want to go out and have some home entertainment in the driveway, what kind of stars can we see this week? Well, that'll depend on where you were or where you are. Actually, I mean, uh, people who live in urban areas. Uh, what you want to be looking up at is the moon because it'll shine through anything, and it's it's waxing as we speak. So Venus, which is not a star, of course, it's a planet, uh, is bright up there in the west. Um, mm-hmm. In fact, they're fairly close to each other. You go out there at sunset and look up, you'll you'll see a sight that's um, kind of kind of invokes the kind of feelings I get reading Tolkien, you know, Lord of the Rings, that sort of thing. It's very elvish looking mm. with this crescent moon and uh, Venus hanging up there. So that that would be the thing I'd go look for. I mean, that, that'll be accessible to anybody regardless of where they live, uh, assuming, of course, there's no clouds. <laughs> okay. Um, any asteroids you just give us a... I think there was a, a, a shower coming through last week. We just caught a little bit up during the night. but uh, Yeah, that would have been the Lyrids, yeah. 
Yes, yeah. So if we want a little home entertainment, just go sit out in the back deck or the driveway or whatever and just look up at the stars and uh Yeah, look look at look at what you can see. The spring see. stars are up there. Arcturus and Leo the Lion, you know, constellations of spring are up, Virgo. Uh, but really, the, the outstanding sight in the night sky right now will be the moon and Venus. All right. All right. Well, I'm going to have to wind down. I'll let you all go. This has been a wonderful party. You know, you are all um, wonderful. You are all welcome back in the genie bottle anytime. Thank you all so much. And, again, oh, by the way, this week I've got two uh, two upcoming shows I want to tell you about. And you guys, too, call Wednesday, I've got director, actor. Um, I might need your help uh, to to, uh, to co-host on this, Eric. He's an actor, director, singer. His name is Don Most. Uh, most of us got to know him as Ralph Mouth in Happy Days when he went by Donnie Most. But sure. Don Most will be here at Madame Perry Salon Wednesday night. And on Thursday, returning to Madame Perry Salon with the DCD is Bruce Sudano. Now, Bruce was in two bands years ago called Alive and Kicking and Brooklyn Dreams. And in Brooklyn Dreams, he was on the same label with his future wife, uh, Donna Summer, and wrote a lot of songs for her and performed with her. Um, in fact, uh, still in that house, you know, he, he and Donna moved to uh, Nashville to raise their kids and still continue their careers. So Bruce Sudano, and uh, sometimes I still play his recording. He does a, an acoustic version of Bad Girls. Love it. Love it. But uh, so Donnie Most on Wednesday night and Bruce Sudano on Thursday night, Madam Perry Salon. Please, back. You know what I always say. And by the way, uh, go visit the websites for all my guests here. Uh, you're gonna be you're gonna be glad you did. They are all entertaining. They all have fantastic books and uh, an absolute charm. You guys all be rock. Will I know? Say, hey, and if you want a copy of my CD, this is Hong Kong Prop. Everybody's got the screen. If you only have a 401k, you're not getting the most for retirement. Wait, what? Add a Robinhood IRA on top, then they'll boost it by 3%. You can do that? And if you transfer in any retirement account, you get 3% on top of that. Is there a limit to the match? No limit. Robinhood Gold gets you the biggest contribution match of any IRA on the market. Sign up for Robinhood Gold at Robinhood.com boost by April 30th. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Match on transfers subject to additional terms and conditions. Robinhood Financial LLC, member SIPC.